This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith. And for many years, I have thought it would be interesting to use the characters and the events of films as a a sort of sociological data by which to demonstrate ideas or explore theories or however that is. And as the years have gone by, I found that to be more and more true of horror films more so than any other genre. And I love doing this with you, Marshall. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laura Patterson, Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I always learn so much about the world. And I don't know, I just, I, I get really cool lenses through which to see all the really important questions in the world would most of which have to do with morality and what is right and what is wrong. And how do I see myself situated in the world? And I don't know. I just, I love that. But anyway, I, I just, I get these really cool ideas and lenses on that from having these conversations with you. So I just, I really appreciate that. And horror films are a perfect starting point for that because they dig into so many just unending, it seems number of questions that we can, we can dig into. And so, yeah, I love this. Absolutely. I completely agree. We watched James Wan's 2004 film Saw written by Lee Winnell and James Wan launched their careers, changed the horror genre still is relevant and a touchstone in the, in the history of the genre for uh, multiple reasons. And we found our way to saw through a mini series that I think, I guess we're still in that started with the conjuring and has led us to, to revisit some of these possession films and, and what is going on with them and the fears they represent well, there were a couple of detours, but particularly The Conjuring and Insidious, which are both James Wan films. And from our discussions there in previous episodes, we wanted to see how, how things played out with Saw. Neither of us had revisited it in some time. And that's, that's where we got the inspiration for this week. So you can absolutely listen this week and, and, follow along but that is that is where we okay so we watched the 2004 film saw the synopsis from imdb is two strangers awaken in a room with no recollection of how they got there and soon discover their pawns in a deadly game if you have somehow managed to live this long and not have had saw spoiled for you you should absolutely go and watch Saw before you listen to the rest of this episode. We will we will totally spoil this film. It's a landmark film for a reason. If somehow you have managed to come this far, live this long without knowing anything about what happens with Saw, 
you should absolutely pause us and go watch the film. Please come back and listen to us after, but it's a film that is a landmark film for a reason and should be watched with the less you know about it, the better. We don't spoil anything else, which is unusual for us. We will dive right into discussion of the film as well. So, so even if you have somehow seen it, might be worth a rewatch. It's definitely a film that is rewatchable if you're into horror movies, at least. <laughs> and you can find the rest of our episodes. All of the catalog is available for free on Spotify and on our website, collectivenightmares.com. You can also find us on iTunes, your podcast app. Apparently, if you rate us or review us, it helps bump us in the search algorithms so other folks can find us. Or if all that seems like too much trouble, if you enjoy what you hear, just tell somebody you know who likes horror movies or likes podcasts. Maybe they'll give us a listen. We would appreciate it. And press play on your tape recorder. All right. Tell me your Saw story, please. My story? What your, like, what'd you think? History with Saw? Sure, whatever. That was really fun. That was really fun to watch. I I saw it forever ago. What year did it come out? Four. Oh, four. So, okay. I guess here, probably. I saw it in the theaters when it first came out. I really liked it in the theaters when it first came out. And that might be the only time I've seen it, honestly. And so it was really fun to go back and revisit And I had so many mixed emotions watching that film. It was just a lot of fun. Like it started off, I started off remembering how much I liked it. I'm like, oh, cool. Why didn't we do this sooner? Like, this is a really good film. And then I started to really question some of their choices and get really uncomfortable about a lot of the things that they seem to be elevating, I guess. And that was fun too. And then I was wondering if it was going to completely shift and be more like The Conjuring where it's like, it starts off with, oh, that's a cool movie. And then turns into like, oh no, it's a disaster. But I felt like by the end, it started to pull itself back around again. And I was unsure by the end, which is great because this will be so much fun to talk through. So yeah, I have have so many things I want to dive into, but yeah, in short, I mean, it's a good film. I'll say no matter what we end up deciding like The Conjuring, it was fun to watch. Absolutely. It's a good film. It's an impressive film. Did you ever watch the short no, I didn't know there was a short. Oh, God. They, Juan and Winnell shot a short. I think that's literally just them. That was the concept. And that's what they used to pitch and got funding for the full screenplay. Really? No, I didn't know that. I mean, that was the whole, I mean, not, not the whole, but that was a, a huge claim to fame because it was it was how they broke into the into the industry and you know their first film is freaking carrie elius and donald uh danny glover so on and so forth i mean even oh, so I, didn't, I didn't realize that this was their first film yeah yeah uh, wow yeah i mean you know million dollar budget is we talked about this obviously not that much but yeah uh let's see i think short film i think they just shopped it around i don't really know how they let's see yeah, they shot a low-budget short film of the same name from a scene out of the script and used that to uh, pitch and were given the the million dollars and, I guess, got 
people on board. Wow, was it good? Apparently it was good enough to get convince Elius and Glover and Monica Potter and Dina Meyer and whoever else is in. Did you see it or no? No, I've never watched it. I should. I feel irresponsible. I've thought about watching it many times. I haven't, haven't ever. I'm super curious what the quality of that needed to be to get that kind of attention. Right. For personal reasons, I suppose. Right, right. Um, I mean, it's a good film. It's a great film. It's totally enjoyable to watch. Well-constructed. Obviously, one is... But I, I would have to imagine that the short film had enough of his talent to be noticeable. Yeah, it's a great film. All around, great film. Still a great film. Surprised at how well it holds up. I understand why it made $100 million on a million-dollar budget or whatever it did and launched a franchise. I have no idea when I first watched it. I don't know if I saw it in the theater. I would think I would have. I just, I know, I think I've watched it twice. I told you that one spring break, either either 11 or 12, Chris and I watched all of the saws in a row. I mean, it took a day or two, a couple of days. So that would have been the last time I saw it. It's great. It's a great film. Is Chris a horror fan? I don't really picture him liking horror, much less watching however many saws there were all in a row. No, he's not really. I think sometimes he will. I know he has, you know, everybody's got their thing in horror that they really can't watch. And I know his is drowning. So there are some, there's some that he will and some that he won't. I don't know <laughs> if it was. people like us, Marshall, who keep searching for it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? There's got to be something. <laughs> Just kicking the pig yeah. in, a, in Cannibal Holocaust. I don't think right. it does because that's real. Whatever. It's still just a pig. Um <laughs> I don't think that counts as something I can't watch in a horror film because it's real and that's different, totally different. I mean, there's things that I really don't like to watch. I have a crush my ankle. Anything with the ankles and the feet really is hard for me to watch. This, the sawing is not so good, but in the dark night when he drops, he drops the mob boss off the like third story fire escape to break his legs. That, that's... I will close, I will wince, I will close my eyes like right at the impact point when that, you know, when the, the shard, the bones break through or whatever. Anyway, we've all, everybody's got their thing, you know, that's cool. Teeth thing is another thing. You know, if they, if the bear trap had, had gone off, that, that's probably one where I would have, I would have blinked or timed my whatever, just not to see that moment. So, I mean, everybody's got their thing. It's fine. Anyway, I don't know, but we watched it. I think the immediate question that comes to mind is are all of the ancillary characters not white men and the primary characters white men because there is some sort of commentary or because the movie is sexist and racist? That for me is the clear, obvious which line we need to draw and sort out. Then the rest, I don't know. It sounds like you have other concerns. That's, or... that's such an interesting starting point because that's not where I would have started at all. So I'm trying to shift my like mental space. We don't have to start there. Where do you want to start? We can, we can, we don't have to start there. That's just what seemed to me the, the apparent. Let's start there. But let, I'll just say that where I'm inclined to go first and we'll go second was what fear does it address? 
And then what solutions does it propose to that fear? And again, in terms of ideology, what message is it giving us? And I think it gets really messy. So let's answer your question first, because it's going to be a lot less messy, I think. Because my first thought is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's about right. That's about right. It's sexist and racist or it's... yeah. Or it's common to some sort of commentary. No, I don't think it's commentary. I, well, I, I, don't, I don't yet think it's commentary. I guess when we start digging into the ideology, maybe we'll stumble upon something. But no, I think that's just how it goes because they're the most important people in the world. So they were obviously <laughs> the main characters. And I mean, the scene where I don't remember her name now, the wife was could have shot. What's his name? Alice Allie. Is the, yeah. And, and what's uh, the guy? The dude is the bulbous eyed person from Lost. Right, exactly. Zep. Zep. So when Allie could have shot Zep and instead, first of all, doesn't, which is just ridiculous. You're there trying to protect your kid. You've got a gun right near you. You did this nice maneuver to get the gun. You don't need to like ease him into some sort of, oh, well, go tie yourself in the corner and I'll call the police. Like, no, you just shoot him. Obviously, you just shoot him. Like, that is not up for debate. But on top of that, when she then was talking to her husband on the phone or whatever, and she's like, come here, I need you. And I was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. It was like the worst scene of the entire film. It was painful, as painful as the torture. And there were certainly places where I looked away because it was hard to look at. I think that was worse. Just watching her totally blunder that, especially with her kids sitting right there. Like, yeah. Take some charge. And there was no need for that. Like, who wrote that in the screenplay? Like, okay, she's got it. She's fumbling with the gun. And then she's going to say to her husband, we need you here. Why aren't you here? And then the gun gets taken away from her. That was a mess. That was an absolute mess. And that would certainly be an example of these ancillary characters being used to tell the story of the main character as though the main character's story is the only important story to tell. You know, that comes up. I, I can't help but Harken back to Tucker and Dale and our other Allie in that film where Allie's <laughs> actions. That's great. Then we can yeah. have a name for the trope. It's the Allie trope. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> right? But Allie's actions were entirely in service of the male characters in the film. And it had nothing to do with her being a cohesive character or having motivations that made any sense. And I just, I felt that so strongly in that scene too. Allie was there to tell, what's his name? What was his name? I don't know anybody's name apparently in this film. Zep. No, the, um, the, the surgeon. Lawrence. Lawrence, right. Yeah, she was there to tell Lawrence's story and she was a prop for Lawrence's redemption or non-redemption. And so she couldn't take any action or be a human because that's not what was important. He was what was important. Absolutely. I said out loud at least twice, maybe three times, like, shoot him. Yes, that was painful. The chase was, it was well done with the kind of sped up footage and the, quick cuts back and forth between the cars zooming forward. I don't think it's the comparison between the Dawn of the Dead, where we have like a four minute shot of every camera setup of like, here's a headlight. Here's a, (laughs) here's the front of the car. Here's the windshield. They're all jamming at you versus, you know, four frames of this sped up. And then this, and then this was all, couldn't be more different. That was, that was all fine, but it was a it was an elaborate chase scene. Not only was the she should have shot him part of it, but also he'd been stabbed and then he was punched in the kidneys like however many five six times by Donald Glover, who's been waiting for this forever. And 
was shot I, or I don't know was shot at oh then the gun jams was I was like okay I mean I'm with you though it it was bad just just when Allie didn't shoot him but then when Glover's shooting at him and hits him I thought hit him and then the gun jams and he's like what the it's like okay that was by far that was terrible that and my other well, real big I say though some of that I was willing to give to them in a throwback to the slasher film kind of way I'd like establishing a villain who has these sort of bizarre supernatural powers that I was I was okay with using using Allie to do that that part I took sure. ideological offense to because that just was horrible how they played that out but the whole rest of it the fact that he got you know whatever strangled and shot and not shot and then punched and then and still made it I, I'm almost willing to let that slide just as a oh he's a villain that's what they do the ideological fence is much worse absolutely uh granted the other practical issue not ideological i was still dealing with the the practical is at the end when zepp's in the room with larry and adam and uh it comes down to zepp's gonna kill him and he's like you know, you don't have to kill me. I already did whatever. And he's like, no, there are rules. And they felt the need to edit in a cut back to Zepp listening to his tape that says there are rules. So I was like, oh my God, you did. It's not like you didn't do this an hour and a half ago. You did this like four minutes ago. We can remember that much. I mean, give us that much. Anyway, the ideological Tobin Bell, Jigsaw, what's his name? The, the the guy the the yeah i guess his name is jigsaw yeah jigsaw they made a point to tell us his name too and I, jonathan am i just making that totally up i've no maybe, idea maybe he, he, he's just credited as jigsaw in the film or in the credits actually which is okay but whatever so he's white man adam's white man lu's lawrence is white man the cops aren't is anybody else white man? Oh, Zep. This is what, and their stories, like you said, are all the important stories. Everybody else is there's the the cops, black man, Asian man, white woman, the victim who survives, white woman, obviously the wife, the woman he's having an affair with is the Asian Asian woman. Who the fuck is this guy? Oh, the other victim, the razor wire, whatever, white man. So it was, yeah, but the four primary, right, are are Jigsaw, Zep, Adam, Larry. It's their story. They're who we care about. The white, everybody else is just there to serve. And even Glover is a secondary character because he's only there to pursue the four primary. And then I thought I I had some sort of possible inkling that there could be some kind of commentary when the the only person who had survived was the white woman. And then Allie and and the kids survive. But that, that, well, with Allie, that was absolutely all negated when she was totally damseled. She, and which was, yeah, was totally damseled. And as far as the white, the white woman who is the victim who survived, 
I don't know what that was about. Oh, totally. Well, we'll talk about that when we get into the ideology piece for sure. But I mean, her her purpose was to say that Jigsaw saved her, that she thanks him. Oh, and so it's, yeah. Okay. What's his message? Did Danny Glover die? I feel bad that I don't know the answer to that. I thought he lived. I mean, he had been was shot. I suppose we didn't see him like get zipped up in the body bag. So there's some possibility. Does he come back in a sequel? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to look that up because I want to stick to this film. So he possibly could have been wounded like Adam was. But yeah, I, I don't think there was. I- anyway, I thought there was some hope. It was like, again, particularly because the cops and the victims, it was like, there could have been some possible, I don't know what the commentary would have been, but something about like, this is what white men are doing because they have nothing else fucking better to do. <laughs> or they don't have, they don't understand they they don't appreciate their lives because they're insulated by so much privilege that they're they're blind to their opportunity. There there could have totally been that commentary, and it wouldn't have needed to be overt or in your face it could have been just kind of and there was even mentions of class which i thought was interesting so the class piece they seem some sort of bizarrely conscious of because there was the note the mention of the razor wire guy just your average middle class guy or they say specifically middle class and then when glover drops off elu's he's like you know the dentist just was a pedophile two blocks from here and sewers run under this neighborhood too, which was clearly a upper class reference. And then there was the Adam was in his shithole apartment. So he was lower class. So there was some bizarre overt acknowledgement of class. And then everything else was anyway, I don't think any of that commentary was there, but I think it would have been a really interesting if there was something about, there could have been totally something about this is games played by privileged white men when all these other people are already have sort of some kind of understanding about appreciating their life or they've already, they've struggled with enough that they, they don't need to play these games to get something out of it or I don't know, whatever. I don't think that was there. It would have super duper paralleled the other points they were trying to make. So let's hang on to that because I would like at the end of this to come back to how we would have improved the film because I I have this idea that we could have done this really well, that there were kernels of good in there. And I think that's a, I think that's a good piece to hang on to. That might be. But are you with me on there? Are you with me on, you didn't see any race, gender commentary? I didn't see any. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk some more and see if, something arises, but no, I didn't see any. I think you're exactly right that the, it was a story about white men and the rest of the characters were there to help tell their story. Okay. All right. Yeah. So what, what were you, you were looking at what's the fear and. Yeah. So, you know, when we've been looking at these paranormal films and supernatural films recently, I've been making the argument that there's this thread of someone's going to get you, something's going to get you and it's going to get you in your nice little idyllic house. And so you're not, you're not safe even in your, you know, sort of upper socioeconomic class insular household where it looks like you have all the resources you need and whatever, you're still not safe. You're still not safe. And and I do think that's the fear that's being tapped into in those films. And in this film, my first instinct, you know, within the first, say, five minutes of the film was, 
oh, this fear is about trust, right? It's about, can you trust other people? And that at first I like a lot, like I, I like films about trust. It comes at night was about trust. And I, I appreciate that more. And then I started to get critical of myself. Why would that be a fear that I'm somehow willing to say is like acceptable <laughs> or like, oh, it's okay to play in that one because horror films, I do think they let us play out fears that we have and in a way that is not, you know, nobody is for the most part afraid of being stuck in a saw trap, but the types of fears that it brings up, it's like, it's cathartic or something. It lets you play around with these ideas that, that haunt at you. And so, yeah, I thought what it was getting at was trust. And it's interesting because they didn't, they didn't highlight that to the extent that they could have. I started to get really confused as the film went on because first it seemed like, okay, we're pitting these two men against each other and we're giving one a clear incentive to kill the other. And then they've got to cooperate or not cooperate. And there were all these decisions that I found to be really interesting because the characters just, they really cooperated beyond my expectation when uh, I need to just know their names to do this. Lawrence and Adam, Adam. Okay. When Adam got the key, right. He was the first one with the key and he tries the key on his lock and then it doesn't, doesn't take hadn't, had they at that point already um, figured out that Lawrence was supposed to kill him or no, maybe not. I want to say no, maybe no. No. Cause they hadn't, they hadn't found the X marks the spot yet. You're right. Okay. So, but Adam still just takes his key and tosses it right over to Lawrence and I felt like, ooh, I mean, that's, you have a resource in this game. I mean, yes, he tried his two little locks, but like, might you want that for something else? And like, just to, to give it to, I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe you want to let the other guy try his lock, but that just felt like a big, like a, a big note of trust. And then, you know, when the recordings are played and we hear that Lawrence is supposed to kill Adam, there's no real suspicion after that. Like they still basically are playing the game together and helping each other out and, I was surprised not to see more suspicion in Adam around that whole feature. It, it just, it was odd to me. It was odd. And, and Lawrence really doesn't betray that trust, even when it would have been reasonable to do so. I mean, he could have, he could have justified without being a monster. Like, well, I've got to pit you against my family and here I could just throw him the cigarette. I could just get it over with. And he chooses not to, there were just several, several places like that where I thought, wow, they're really working together in a way that they don't have to. So I, d I don't know if it was about trust, but that's what it felt like at the beginning. And then it morphed in, before I go there, I'll, I'll let you jump in here, but then it morphed into this commentary on appreciation of life. And that is really interesting. We need to talk about that a whole lot too, but I don't know. What are your takes on the trust front? Well, what I hear you saying is, if you and I are locked in a basement chained to pipes, I shouldn't expect you to hand me your key if it doesn't work on your locks. <laughs> I don't think I'm like a horribly selfish person. <laughs> These two people don't know each other, right? They don't know. They know there's some kind of game. They know there's some kind of death potentially involved. I just feel like there'd be a little bit of hesitation of like, okay, maybe, but do I need this for something else? Can I look around? I don't know. They were just pretty easy it was pretty easy for them. It seemed to give that away. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm joking. The plus it was you. I know you. That's like way better. <laughs> but if we didn't know each other, like, I don't know who you are. Why are you chained over there? <laughs> yeah. I think the trust, the trust thing is interesting to me. I, it didn't, I don't think it really bothered me 
how about this? I I had no problem with the suspension of disbelief around the trust, particularly because there were two cigarettes. So he kept so so Lawrence really kept his I think they used I think they I think they used their resources pretty skillfully. And that helped with me with the believability a lot. Adam hid the picture. They concealed information from each other. I don't think Lawrence ever told Adam that he had the bullet or had the the message that was like, you have to kill. If I kill you, my family's lives or whatever. He, he saw that note in the box, right? But he didn't ever tell Adam, look, if I just kill you, I, I'm good. Oh, Adam didn't hear it? I thought it was his recording. No, it was his recording, right? And Adam played it. That he had to kill him by six. Yeah. But he, all he knew was that he had the bullet. He didn't know that the cigarettes were a way to poison him. No, no, he didn't. But I, it, it's just weird to introduce a dynamic between the only two characters in the film that one is supposed to kill the other and then have that not really play out. I mean, it, that seems to me to be a triumph of trust, I guess, in terms of those being our two characters. They, they're cuddling at the end, basically, and Lawrence is leaving and Lawrence turns back and says, you can believe me or you can trust me or whatever he says. Yeah. So I saw that to be maybe some sort of moral indication of what the film was trying to argue. Like, I think it gets really messy when we start digging into the messaging that the film had and how these tricks were set up and what they were supposed to teach us. But that felt to me like it was supposed to be a triumph of, of trust and working together and not, you know, not taking the maybe easy way out, if you want to call it that, by just killing your partner and then you can win, but we can get through this together which then doesn't really pan out because they don't really get through it together. It just, it gets messy, but I, I, that seemed to be a big message that was laying there, whether they, I don't know whether they did something with it or not. It was there. Yeah. And the more I think about it, the messier that gets for me too. The woman who survives didn't appreciate her life because she was a drug addict. Right. And what was the sin of the razor wire person? He tried to commit suicide, so he didn't oh, appreciate it. Oh, okay. Um, and so what, but but we don't, we don't really have any sin from Adam and Larry, do we? Well, so Lawrence w- didn't appreciate his family and didn't appreciate his, right? That's why his wife and his child got taken, because it was like, you're going to have to fight for them because you... I mean, his whole setup, his whole character arc or whatever was supposed to be, you know, daddy, are you leaving us? Um, and he didn't appreciate them. Okay, but the the real, the messy part of that for me is that he doesn't actually go through with the cheating. Totally, 100%, right, like, 100%. So when I ask like his sin, it's like his sin should have been, he, as we have it, his sin is like he thought he was going to cheat, but then he didn't, so he should have been saved. And then what is Adam's? Right, sin? totally. Adams was something about being pathetic or not being standing up for himself or whatever. But no, I think you're hundred percent right. That that is what almost made me turn my view of the film is realizing what you're saying that we as an audience were actually meant to be on Larry's side, Lawrence, whatever his side by the end. I think we were when he saws his foot off, we, you know, he didn't cheat on his wife. He wants to save his family. He shoots what's his name, Adam in the shoulder. You know, he's, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say hero, but for in that room, 
he's he's a hero for sure he is and he and when he i mean he cut like you said he doesn't take the easy way he doesn't poison adam he cuts his own fucking foot off and crawls off to try and get help absolutely he's a hero he he's also the hero because he doesn't cheat i mean he thought about it but i mean it's like I mean, again, for me, the the two obvious references of the film or inspirations are Seven, and then the moment, the the little bit in Fight Club where Raymond Kessel, I think is his name, the convenience store owner, where he, the narrator Durden, gets him on his knees and is like, "What did you want to be with your life? Why are you stuck here at this shitty convenience store?" And the guy, the guy's like, "I wanted to be a vet," or I don't know what he says. So he and so he puts him on his knees and he says, you know, what did you want to be? And the guy tells him a vet or whatever. And he's like, he takes his driver's license and he's like, okay, I'm going to come back in a month. And if you haven't started doing something about getting your vet license, I'm going to kill you. I mean, those are the two moments. And Fight Club one, that's just a throwaway, but they give like the month. So there's an opportunity for redemption. And then with with Seven, the sins are obvious. I mean, the you know, the gluttonous guy is housebound because he's so fat, and the slothful guy has is has this huge criminal rap sheet. Like he they're clear, obvious sins. There are these are the things that justify me playing this game with your lives. And here the surgeon's like, well, is he's a surgeon. Oh, he works a little bit too hard and doesn't spend as much time with his family. I mean, fuck you. Come on. That, really? That's what we're going to. And the other guy's like, okay, he's a little bit lazy, but he, he he's working. He's taking pictures. He's catching people who are presumably also sinning. It's not like he's setting people up and, and staging photographs to blackmail people, which would have been totally a, a obvious sin he's just oh well this guy's cheating on or probably cheating on his wife i'm gonna take pictures of that i mean that's not really i don't really i don't think of that as a wrong i mean okay, okay it's so- not the most honorable profession in the world but you're not you're a messenger exposing wrong you're not actually perpetrating it well, and you're, you're totally right. And I want to take that even another sort of layer deeper and say the character that we saw the backstory of who, uh, whatever, he was faking his illness and, oh, if you're so sick, then whatever, whatever. And, you know, he was presumably the, the very superficial backstory that we got said something like, oh, you're hurting people by pretending to be sick or whatever it is he's doing. So in that scene, I just, I was overwhelmed with a desire for assassination nation. And I feel like the argument around sin and morality and assassination nation, which just appealed to me so much more than this was everybody has got their dirty backstory and nobody is perfect and nobody is, you know, without sin, so to speak. And assassination nation was all about like, Hey, what if everybody's dirt was wide open and everybody got to know everybody's everything. And suddenly there's like a leveling effect to that because it takes the people who are trying to assert some sort of moral high ground and it brings them down. And it says, Hey, look, you're not really that much better than all these other people that you were just punishing or saying are wrong. And there's an elevating to people that are, are being put down publicly, I guess I would say, cause it's like, Oh, look, the people that are trying to like bring you down deserve to be brought down. Also, we're all human. We're all kind of struggling with things. We all have skeletons in our closet. And I just felt like 
From the jigsaw perspective, the middle part of the film was where I was super critical and that this is all highlighting that jigsaw. Okay. Yeah. He's got this idea. He's going to help people. He's going to like hurt, you know, he's going to motivate them to be better off or people don't appreciate their life enough. And he even says explicitly in one of the scenes, Oh, people don't appreciate other human suffering or they don't understand it. And it's like, dude, you're not doing a good job of what you're doing. So like you are <laughs> accidentally screwing things up and killing people you shouldn't, or, you know, misunder- grossly misunderstanding. You know, I think we've got an addict and we've got someone who committed suicide. And I think both of those situations, I just couldn't help think of the stereotypical, like grumpy father-in-law. I don't mean to use that as a <laughs> over a stereotype, but you know, just like, I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> like sitting there at Thanksgiving or whatever, like, you know, I've got the answer to everybody's problems. If you just stop this and if you just did that and if you, oh, you, well, why would you kill yourself? Like there's, you know, not like there's, there's deep seated psychological issues going on there. And we need to have empathy for a person in that situation and realize that even the decision someone makes in one moment is not necessarily what they would have intended to do beforehand. Or, you know, like there's, there's nuance that Jigsaw just like blunders his way through and then says, I know everybody's solution to everybody's ill while screwing things up himself. And somehow that's, I thought the scene in the film where the drug addict says he helped me was absolutely supporting that ideology. And that really bothered me, really bothered me. I think it gets better later on. I think we might be able to pick that apart later on. But at that moment, I, everything you're saying is 100% right. It was, it was just a, a train wreck. As you emphasize that and point that out, And going back to the conservative, the uber conservative ideology within The Conjuring, if you look at those characters and those actions, that's another super conservative ideology. If you have problems like addiction, mental health, uh, you're, you're not really a productive member of society participating in the capitalist rat race you're just getting by with your shithole apartment and or you're not even if you are participating in winning capitalism as a surgeon you're not fulfilling your patriarchal role as the savior and breadwinner of your wife and kid then you deserve to be forced into a situation where you better fend for your life and out of your own, really, if you wanted to bad enough, you could get your shit together and save yourself. And then you would really understand how it is to be someone who's a real American and who doesn't, you know, just tough it out. You, whatever your mental health issues are, just we let me give you a, a few lashes with some razor wire and shut the fuck up. Don't tell me about your problems. Quit your suicidal tendencies and just do it. That's as fucking sick and conservative as, as anything, as anything. And the, oh, yeah. And that's totally epitomized in the, in the moment you're saying where it's like, Oh, all these, this opioid crisis, all these people with addiction issues, well, fuck them. All they need to be put in is a situation where, they've either got to kill somebody or kill themselves or quit doing drugs and that'll help them and it'll solve the problem. And we'll be thankful. They'll be thankful that this hyper cruel response to their situation is really how to, how to get those people to see the light. It's absolutely, I mean, that's as fucked up of a neoconservative cruelty is the point to solving the ills of, of society as 
I, as any movie we've seen. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. And I kept thinking about like scared straight, right? This argument that like, you don't need to be, you don't yeah. need, yeah, you don't need empathy. You don't need understanding that you might be dealing with some deeper, difficult situation that would require actual care over time. <laughs> it's just fix it right now. You could do it. And I, as you know, the white man protagonist of the film, I know how to do it. And I know how to solve all of your problems. Doesn't matter. Huge swath of things that I see is not right. I'm going to put you in this situation and fix you because I can do it. Like it was a mess. It was a mess, but I do think it gets better. That was where I think it went from the beginning, <laughs> but I think okay. it gets a little... how, how does it get better? Okay. I think it gets better. I, th- I thought the epitome of that was when the drug addict says, he saved me or he helped me. But following that, we start to become critical of Jigsaw, right? By the end, we're not on Jigsaw's side. We're on Lawrence's side. We're told that Lawrence didn't cheat. Because I don't know if we knew that by the middle of the film, but we knew it by the end, certainly. So we learn that Jigsaw screwed up, I guess, when it comes to putting Lawrence there. We also see that Lawrence, yeah, took all these steps to be kind or to not play the game or be kind of cutthroat when he could have been. We even, you know, when Lawrence does the flashback to his last night with his daughter or whatever it is, we have this idea that he neglected them or that he was potentially not appreciative enough of his nuclear family and therefore he was straying. And they show us, you know, he's on the computer and he's typing away. And it just seems so cliche to me that scene when it starts, right? He's like, oh, just one more minute, one more minute. But then he does stop and close the computer and get up and go do his thing. And so I think we as viewers are actually put on his side against Jigsaw. So there's still this sort of underlying, I think there's an underlying appeal to Jigsaw's message. I don't think his, his message is totally shot down, but I do think his strategy at least is like, we're not, we're not by the end. Yay, Jigsaw, you're doing the right thing. You're fixing everybody's problems in society. If only we could have more of you out there, which is how the middle felt and how that drug addict's comment felt by the end we're where we want him to die. So have we gained nuance in understanding these people's problems? Maybe. I mean, somewhat, certainly. It's not as bad as it was in the center of the film. What is Zepp's sin? Oh, right, yeah. And we don't really know, do we? I mean, we saw him just be like a kind guy in the one scene he was in in the whole film. And then what did his tape say? I mean, it said, like, if you want to save yourself, you have to kill these two people, which, again, is from Jigsaw's point of view of, like, trying to do something moral or upstanding. I mean, Jigsaw's just messed up. Like, that's not, that's not okay. Oh, I just want assassination nation. I want the like relativity. <laughs> I want Jigsaw to get like that coming to him. Like you don't get to stand up, tell everybody what to do. Tell everybody, I know how to fix all your problems. You've got things wrong with you when you yourself are screwing things up massively and killing innocent people all over the place. And it's like, oh, well, whatever. We're just not going to pay attention to that. But you, you know, you didn't, spend as much time at home as you should have and wrote too many emails. Like you deserve to die in this grotesque way. Like that's just, it's, ah, it's, it's like that kind of moral. I'm thinking of like the, the, like the heads of these really, really large and, and immoral religious institutions, right. Where I'm going to do all this terrible stuff in my life and nobody pay attention to that, but I'm going to get up and have this platform where I scream and scream and scream about how everybody else should be living. Like, it just feels so much like that. It's like he didn't get put down as much as he should have. And God, I want him to. But he also, he wasn't the winner at the end. Like he wasn't the hero. Well, but he also, he does survive. He does. He does, but. Adam is killed, right? Didn't he kill Adam? 
he doesn't he just leave him in there? So Oh yeah, he shuts the door. Right. Well I assume he died right. eventually. And also then like he failed in his rehabilitation attempts, right? If his whole goal as Jigsaw was to get these people, yeah, scared straight, get them on the right path, teach them a lesson, you know, <laughs> it didn't work. It worked for one person apparently out of how many? <laughs> you know, that's a pretty crappy rehabilitation program right there. But also it's a rehabilitation from what? What he has decided is wrong. <laughs> but, but there's no, that's what I say is there's no continuity there, right? What's the, the surgeon's going to decide? Well, I probably shouldn't do as many operations so I can tuck my kid in. Like, or I, I mean, maybe the surgeon, maybe, maybe Larry, maybe Lawrence uh, won't be as tempted to cheat next time or something. It was the same kind of glossing over of what the problem would be behind someone with a drug addiction or someone who commits suicide, or in that case, someone who's considering straying from their nuclear family. It's, it's not as easy as, hey, appreciate them. Don't you see that you love them? Like, I'm going to almost kill them. You don't want them to die, do you? Okay, marital problem solved. <laughs> like, right. It's just like, it's the idiot who doesn't actually know what's going on in your life, who wants to be prescriptive and yeah, have a moral platform with no real grounds to stand on. Like, that's what Jigsaw <laughs> And that neoconservative, if you just wanted it bad enough, or you just tried hard enough, or you just decided you could exactly get a job or solve your mental health or whatever. I mean, that I find really upsetting. I, there is some sort of redemption. I think you're right. I think there needs, I, I think I need to acknowledge that with Larry taking the humane options multiple times in a row and him surviving at least enough to go for help. As far as we know, at the end of the film, he has survived. That does present a counterpoint to, to these other instances or to this, like you said, the middle, the first two thirds of the film where there really seems to be, yeah, Jigsaw is, is really the one who's pushing the, the neoconservative. Well, if you're a, if you have white men's privilege, you can and a little bit of a little bit of grit and and force the situation and you'll either sort it out and survive and have a happy life or you won't. Did Lawrence live? That's really important. I I assumed he didn't because he was very slowly meandering away there. But then when what's his name? When Jigsaw gets up, I mean Jigsaw knew that he walked out. So I just assumed that he probably got killed. I would rather he get killed for the ideology of the film. I mean, you know, being in the film, I would rather he make it. But if he makes it, then he might go back to his family, appreciate them, live a happier life. And Jigsaw could have won again. Like Jigsaw could have solved Mm -hmm. his problems for him. And ideologically, I don't want Jigsaw to have solved his problems, especially after we realize that Jigsaw's method was totally messed up and he didn't even necessarily have those problems in the first place. So I want Jigsaw to have failed. And I think if Lawrence dies then Jigsaw didn't succeed. Like he really, that whole thing with Adam and Lawrence was just a big failure. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to the film and just say, we don't know. There's no reason that if, I'm sorry, let me say that that a different way. If we were supposed to know that Larry dies at the end, they would have shown us. I appreciate the implications and you can fill it in, but it's a horror movie. We've seen murders. We, we know we've seen people bludgeoned to death. They would have showed us if we needed to know for their story that 
the guy is dead. And they don't even get the like sequel buy-in because they could they would still have a sequel if they show Jigsaw kill Larry in the hallway. They still have Jigsaw and the puppet for sequels. And Glover, they could still have, oh, he just like his neck, he was wounded, but he wasn't killed. They don't even get a pass for that, I don't think. And we don't... So how about this? I think at best, it's uneven or it's messy. It's muddy because the people who survive versus the people who don't, we don't have a clear issue or a clear line of who lives and who dies and who they were and what their sin was. And at worst, it's the people who do live benefited from Jigsaw's odd. We'll just force the issue to the point of life or death and you'll figure it out. I do. I think it's a redemption somewhat from the horrible messaging of the center of the film because it doesn't work well. And we are on Lawrence's side and that's, you know, it's, it gets messy at best. And so again, we're probably back to that argument that you've made many times of, is it better for a film to give a bad message well, or to give a bad message poorly? And I guess I'm going to say poorly because they at least didn't seem to have a ton of intentionality around making this really strong argument of, I know how to solve all of the world's problems. (laughs) I as totally detached and in particularly in this case, privileged white man can just tell you all what to do and make everything all better. So I think that's better. But I, I do want to give some, I don't know if credit maybe is the right word, to the underlying argument of the film or how I think a film around these same ideas could have probably been really cool and why I remember liking it back when it first came out. Because I do think the messaging around having to fight for your life or having your life really challenged or threatened or whatever could be inspirational or could be something that makes someone live their future better. I, there's a song by Judah and the Lion and I think it's called suit and jacket and you can put a little clip of it in the podcast because there's a part of the song where they, they, they say something about how like everybody's going to die. It's a really motivational song. <laughs> I like the song. Cause it's like, it's like, don't waste your life because you know, life is finite and I, it's called suit and jacket. Cause the message is sort of like, don't just, don't just do what everybody says you're supposed to do and, you know, live for your pension plan or try to whatever, have your little house and, you know, go out and figure out what you actually want to be and want to do and help the world or something like that. And um, the song came on, it plays on the radio station that I often play at night when Noah's going to sleep. And so the song was playing and I said, I really like this song. And he said, I don't like the song. I was like, oh, why don't you like it? And it was the part at the end where they say like, we're all going to die or something, which I was just so used to in the context of the song hearing as like a, a motivation. And he's like, he was scared by that, which makes a ton of sense. Right. And so I was like, Oh, and and I tried to have this conversation with him around that. When you look at something bad and scary like that, there are kind of two ways you can look at it. You know, one is you can see that as really sad or depressing or like, Oh no, and be afraid of it. But another is you can see it as motivation. It gives you a reason to make use of the time you have. And I try, and this also comes from, I think I will say this is particularly heightened in me coming from the sort of Ohio culture that I come from, not to stereotype all of Ohio, but certainly the part of Ohio that I come from, where I think a lot of people have really given up on the thought of being happy and instead have taken on various vices and things like football and, (laughs) you know, going to the casino and going to Disney World and just drinking too much and, you know, all this stuff to try to fill holes because 
life isn't really living up to, I think, what they might want it to be. And it's easier sometimes just to take those kinds of outs than it is to actually address the real issues in your life and try to, you know, and, and I say that from a position of privilege, like some people certainly don't have options within their life to actually make those kinds of changes. But I think a lot of people are just also have options or have the resources to do it, but are afraid to do it. And I try to highlight that with Noah a lot and say like, you know, there are going to be points in your life where you're unhappy and where things aren't going the way you want them to do, you know, to go and try not to get bogged down by that. But instead think about, you know, even if it's hard, like what can you change and what can you do? And so we had this long conversation around that. And I was saying, you know, it's funny because when I hear that in the song, I hear that as a as a motivation, not as a, a fear, I guess. And I think there's there's some element of that that could play out in a film with this message. And I actually kind of like that message. If it was set up, I, I mean, I, I struggle. That's why I want to ask you if there's a way we could do this well. If it was set up fairly, and I guess what I mean by that is nobody innocent can die. There can never be, you can never be wrong in the setup. And nobody can die for a reason that isn't their own choice. Almost I'm thinking like the setup with a guy who we just, that's a, it's a stupid thing to punish him for too. So I wouldn't even want to punish him for that, but I'll just, just to lay out what I'm trying to get at here. Like the guy who tried to kill himself and then, you know, Jigsaw says, okay, you have to cut yourself a whole bunch more to make it out alive or whatever. But then he couldn't make it out. Like he tried and then he died, which is totally defeats Jigsaw's purpose, right? Cause he did it. He did what he was supposed to do. And then the trap caught him anyway, which is stupid. But if it was somehow like ideologically laid out such that people were just put in a position where you had to do something that didn't hurt anybody else and was just like a, here, go take, take your life. You know, you have to overcome something gross or hard or painful or whatever, but you're not going to die. You just have to like want it. Um, or you can just sit here and, you know, die, whatever. Here's your timer. You've got plenty of time. It's not a race against the clock to barely get the thing in your, you know, but you just have to like take that. I, I think there's something motivational in that, that I almost could have stood behind in a, in a horror movie villain. It's like Jigsaw just botched it on like a hundred different levels. And, but I almost wonder if then that argument could tie into what you were saying about privilege and this idea that you have a lot, but you can't see it. And so like, if everyone who died or everyone who somehow failed at those tasks were like the privileged, I don't know. I don't know if that's too messy, but there might be something there. Yeah, I think it could be done. But for all the potential problems of Fight Club, the I'm going to take your driver's license and I'm going to come back in a month and if you haven't done something, I'm going to kill you, is a much more effective implementation of that concept if that's what you were trying to do. If you're trying to add the layer of demonstrating that privilege can be a hindrance to those folks who have it in that they would be less able to commit to the temporary suffering in order to be able to survive or thrive in a more profound fashion in the long term. Uh, I think you could do that as well. That would be, I mean, with the razor wire thing, it would be set it up so that you would get out you would be wounded or you would be hurt or you would be kind of like the, uh, kind of like the room is. I mean, the idea is he's a surgeon. He, he knows how to tourniquet his himself. He can get through the foot. Like if he's committed enough, he will survive, which is another reason that the film ends up being super muddy is some of the games are set up where there is no survival. 
it's rigged against you regardless. And some of them, there is a possibility, right? Because the the jaw thing, there was uh, hope, but the razor wire thing, there wasn't. And the the lock, the safe with the flammable, whatever, who I don't even remember what his sin was either. But He was the one who faked his illness. Oh, okay. So even still, you know, make it so it's, I don't know, Laura, but like the lower half of your legs are covered in napalm or whatever it is. And I, I'm fine with there being a clock as a metaphor for life. We're all on a clock or something. But again, it would be like, okay, cover him in or, or most of him in, in the flammable and then give him a key. And then on the other side of the room, there's a fire extinguisher. So if he will light himself on fire, that will get him access. He can put himself out, but he's going to have to go through that burn to get there. Okay. Yeah. And then you could, and then you could map that out. Like you're saying to where you could have, I, again, I'm going to think of this, the person in seven, the model who is the cut off your nose, despite your face of well, you could live if you would call the cops, but you'll be disfigured or you can take the sleeping pills and kill yourself that's a great implementation of that. You know what? You'd be disfigured. So what? You know, I mean, yeah, that sucks. Don't, I don't want to minimize. I'm not disregarding those people who may have some sort of disfigurement and that impacting the quality of life. But it's that's far different than being dead, particularly when it was like, a, again, I understand that there's real issues with dealing with the world if you have some sort of disfigurement. But again, that would be a thing where it would be like, you could totally have, I don't know, upper class white man was like, just wouldn't do it because he, they haven't had that discomfort and somebody who's like grew up, I don't know, in poverty or war torn or whatever, ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, I've been burned before. My dad used to burn me with cigarettes. Fuck it. I could deal with some burns till I get across the room. I mean, it wouldn't have to be obviously that lighthearted or casual, but you could totally map that out. And I think that would be a cool, interesting idea. Do you have, you want to respond to that or? I, I do. Cause as you're saying that, first of all, yeah, that's exactly along the lines of what I was thinking. But what I keep getting hung up on as you're laying out these suggestions is we would still need to come up with appropriate moral failings, <laughs> you know, sure. who deserve, so to speak it, like who, needs to go through that amount of suffering to appreciate their life. What are they doing beforehand that they should warrant that? And go into Disneyland. <laughs> that gets, it gets super <laughs> tricky. <laughs> it gets super, super messy. And then I'm back to wanting a message like assassination nation. Like even if that was done as well as we possibly could have, and we thought really hard about how we were going to line up these characters who like got it, so to speak. I wonder if I wouldn't still be back to just wanting the argument to be the relativity of sin, like nobody's, you know, who's going to stand on this moral pedestal and point the finger and say, you deserve it. You deserve it. You deserve it. I will. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I volunteer. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. You're right. You will. Won't you? <laughs> um, I think about your approach to writing a film. All right. Would you? So who would you, who would deserve it? Who? Well, 
what comes to mind, what I do remember of that whole marathon saw session, obviously I was focused on other things because I was in dissertation hell and whatever else, but somewhere in the like number five or number six, one of the victims, the primary person who they target is a health insurance company executive. Great. And I remember that very specifically because it was such a, of all the all the games and victims and not even really paying attention or thinking about it at the level of what we're thinking now, that particular film was structured around the, the notion that this, this dude who is profiting off of telling other people that you can't have health in order for me to make money and then putting him in some sort of game that pitted him against himself or something. I, again, I don't remember, but the, the core of the idea there was you have enjoyed great luxury based on denying other people healthcare. And so you are now going to be faced with, I don't know what it was. You have to cut off your feet or whatever it is. I don't know. But the point was that that for me was a very clear, and I could absolutely pick out people. <laughs> okay. I like what you're saying there. I like what you're saying there that that clarified something for me because, okay, first of all, yes. If your victims are victims based on ideology, such that they represent ideology more than they do actual people that would, I would appreciate that. Like that would help in that kind of film. So if you made them really on the nose characters, that would make the part of me that wants to go back to the assassination nation argument. It would recoil less because I would feel like, okay, you're making a clear ideological argument here. You're not trying to talk about the depths of any human and reduce any person down to like one element of, you know, their sort of overall life experience that would help. But, but um, there are people, I mean, uh, I, I give me another five minutes, Laura, I could line up a movies worth of victims, Mitch McConnell. I mean, he, he is, he's not just a character. He's a living person who out of nothing other than cruelty and spite is denying tens of millions of people, food, shelter, safety, you name it, for nothing other than an ideological commitment to the idea that the federal government should not actually be effective in helping people. Put him in a fucking game. I'll grease him up myself and give him a candle. <laughs> anyway, Wait, I go want to ahead. say one other thing and then I'm going to I got come my back political rant in. Go ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, the other thing I wanted to say on this topic, and then I'll come right back to that, is that the sins that they picked in this film were seriously flawed sins. Seriously, 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 seriously flawed sins. I mean, from at the most flawed, I mean, it's hard to pick out which is most flawed, but I'm going to say the most flawed one is the one where we realize the sin didn't even happen, regardless of those other things being considered sins, which shouldn't be. Suicide attempts, oh, you don't appreciate yourself enough or whatever. That's way deeper and just a crazy glossing over of that addiction. Um, whatever, faking illness in some way that isn't even laid out such that we would have a real reason to understand if that was or wasn't morally problematic or whatever was going on there. Apparently it didn't matter to give us that backstory. Um, and then, yeah, the guy who was cheating on his wife or whatever, or wasn't actually even doing it, which again, that sin in itself is, I think, problematic to begin with, but then even worse when you realize he didn't even do it. And then we don't know the other guy yet lives in a crappy apartment or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what his mm -hmm. sin was. So Okay, that's like a huge, huge, huge flaw in that. Um, but I'll just say on your topic of identifying certain people as des deserving punishment, not certain traits or elements or directions in society that lots of people might share, but individual humans, like you as a full person deserve punishment. 
I can't help but turn a lens on myself all the time when I try to make those sorts of value judgments. And, and I, I would say on you as well, like, that's why I I'm often have this need to like seek out hypocrisy in the world. And I think it's very easy. It's very easy to assume that the choices that we make that can potentially hurt people are not bad enough because we do a lot of other things that are good or we're not as bad as fill in the blank, but we still are sitting in real positions of privilege relative to a lot of people in the world. And we still have the power to, to do better than we are. We have, I mean, we could, we could make choices. We could not drive our cars. We could do things that we don't do. We could not teach an environment and society class. So I suppose I'm used to examples like that. We could not fly on an airplane to go somewhere for fun for vacation. We could not spend money on certain items that contribute to like problematic situations in society. And I'm not saying we're terrible because we're not. And there's a lot that's worse than us. But I, I think it's dangerous to elevate ourselves and say like, oh, any of that is totally, totally fine. Like I just, I, I have a really hard time getting any kind of judgment like that out of my mouth without thinking I'm doing the exact same thing that I'm accusing, you know, Ted Haggard or whatever of, which is standing up and pointing the finger at a bunch of people and then saying, oh, but just don't look at me. Like I'm, I'm totally fine. You don't have to worry about it. I know that's obviously a crazy extreme like I'm taking that way down a road too far, but that instinct just really, I have a hard time with that. And I appreciate that. But there's two things that one is that's why you punch up. That's why in particular, the, the health insurance company executive in whichever saw that was saw sequel that was because you, you just like racism, you connect it to power and yeah, you could, I don't know get a health insurance plan with less quality and donate a hundred dollars a month to some indigent health insurance fund. But, uh, but all that is, I mean, that's why you would need to punch up in, yeah. in choosing your victims. And then the, but the flip side of that, Laura, is there needs to be a balance of uh, self-awareness and uh, acceptance of one's own role, my own role in problematic behaviors or systems of oppression or inequalities or whatnot. And the manipulation and the exaggeration of the power of individual decisions. That is that neoliberalization of social change that has been leveraged and utilized in order to render more significant change, actually less productive and and ineffective, which is the, yeah, you could recycle, but you feeling guilty about not recycling more does fuck all compared to Alcoa. I don't even know who makes aluminum anymore, but Coca-Cola making some sort of massive change where they say, you know what, we're going to refund a quarter for every single Coke can that is returned to us. And we're going to recycle that. That's going to be the deposit that you pay for any one of our products. And that's how it's going to be. Those two things are your guilt over not recycling some can or whatever is not productive in a way that, that these other things are. And so I, 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 again, I want to say that particularly acknowledging that I am a white man. I grew up in a good family with you with parents who had solid incomes and all that. I, I have lots of privilege. I have lots of privileges. And when I was saying I can, I could pick people, (laughs) I understand why that the implication may have sounded like I'm exonerating myself. I'm not intend for that to say that for, for it to imply that I, 
that somebody couldn't point at me and say, you deserve some level of punishment as well, or you don't appreciate things that you should. What I was saying is that I think there are very clear, I mean, you said this, people that are as symbolic or as indicative of an ideology in ways that are, can very clearly communicate or could very clearly signify a, an ideological argument. And there are people like that do exist. And if, uh, I mean, we just did this with, we, some of the darkness, I I don't see any problem with set, set that up, right. Set up a, a politician who is, has just some petty personal issue. And as a result denies some sort of massive policy change have a have a religious preacher who is you know like Donnie Darko is has a kitty porn torture dungeon built into his 27,000 square foot mansion and then goes on Sunday TV and tells everyone they should feel bad about themselves for not tithing more i mean yeah i've got my own issues and i'm do shit that's not good for other people but it's like racism. And I have more power than some, but I can only attach my hypocrisy and my cruelty to a certain level of institutional power. And I at least have some awareness. I try. I make a good faith, continual, concerted effort to, when I do have choice in power, to choose things that are at least on the direction of positive. And there would be a way to do that proportionally, or, to, or there would be ways to signify that in terms of the level of cruelty in the game. You could even do it by some sort of probabilistic chances of survival. Like if you're a health insurance executive, you're going to get out, but you're going to be permanently disfigured and, and disabled. If you're a professor who takes your final exams and throws them in the trash instead of recycling, like you get a pretty good chance you're going to get out of the thing with like a bunch of paper cuts, you know, but like you'll heal and it'll be fine. You could do that still. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, yeah, no, wait, wait, wait. You, you, first of all, I love everything you just said there and you helped clarify something for me that that's what it comes down to. It's whether the, whether the sin that is being represented is a structural sin or an individual sin. Oh yeah. I okay, think that's yeah, there. That's yeah. the big piece. And, and I couldn't, piece that together in my head when you were talking like specifically about Mitch McConnell, (laughs) but like, it's the difference between demonizing the person, which is exactly the argument you were making about recycling or whatever, right? Oh, it's your, and and, sorry, I have like five things I want to say at once. I'm going to stop that one and say a different one and then I'll come back to it. This comes up all the time in my environment society class. And I try to tell my students, which I think was even true of me in this conversation, that it's really easy to, to lean back on the individual guilt because I don't know, because that's just, that's what we do. That's what we're told to do from all this messaging that we receive in society. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to like, want to blame yourself in a way that doesn't acknowledge your place in the structure. And so I think that, I think to some extent, my gut reaction to that was a little bit that, but also I do think there's some credence to saying that even if you're going to target an individual person, you don't demonize them as an individual, you demonize them as an element in the structure, because it's, it's, so their structural position that is being, that is the problem, right? It's not like killing Mitch McConnell doesn't solve the problem, but demonizing that trait, well, <laughs> to some extent, but demonizing that trait, right? And that sort of way of manipulating the structural circumstance is what's really 
important. And so all these ideas that you're laying out there are really important because they're people using power in ways where it's like the use of that power that's problematic. I think we're back to a real fundamental, not maybe not divide, Laura, but difference in that you're, you're so you're so unwilling to demonize an individual. And that's why I balked when I started to say middle manager, because we're back to the fucking Nazis, which we all, ever all things ended Nazis, right? Is people make decisions that enact consequences or shape structure that result in death and abuse and cruelty and mistreatment and you can not want to demonize the individual all you want, but at the end of the day, there is Adolf Eichmann sitting there pushing the paper across the desk. And you know what? He needs to, he deserves to fucking die. And you may not want that responsibility. And as people, we may wish that, that, that didn't happen, but you're back to human smoke. You're back to, I I just, that book. So I, (laughs) (laughs) aggravates me so much of let's pretend that if we didn't go in and, and brutalize the populations of these countries, including civilians and kids and whoever else was in those, that somehow the Nazis would have just stopped at the edges of Europe or the Soviet union or wherever. And if you tallied up all the bodies before and after somehow the bodies would have been been less if the allies hadn't have gone in. I, I just, I can't, I understand that it's a both and. And that's where I guess our different is, difference is, is it is both structure and individuals. And I am, the balance for me of that scale is somehow there's some notable, significant, not in the sense of, enormous, but significant in the sense of measurable. I put the balance on individuals more in a way that is more measurable than you do. And I acknowledge that the structure is there, but those two things are a both and. And I I think what baffles me, or doesn't baffle me, I just will just say the difference seems to be that for me, we, we differ in that you are much less willing to put any or very much weight on the individual versus the structure. This is, it's interesting because I, I'm afraid to ask this question because I don't want to be wrong, but that's what learning is. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question, even though I'm afraid that you'll somehow convince me that you're right in giving me the answer. But why is it that structure overwhelmingly trumps individual when we're talking about people without power? But, you know, so like you can, and I mean, that would be a very conservative argument, right? To look at someone without power and say, well, just fix it. Stop that. Don't make that choice. And we say, hey, no, look at the structural circumstances this person is in. They don't have a lot of options. It's the structure that needs to change. Yet when it's someone with power, then you're arguing that we should lean more heavily on the individual responsibility and not look at the structure in which that person is embedded and like critique the structure rather than the individual I'm afraid, like I said, that you're going to, you're going to have a good answer and I'm going to be wrong, but I guess I should be open to that as someone who wants to learn about the world, not just be right. I thought you were going to ask me something that you were afraid you were going to, you were afraid to ask because it was going to reveal me to be some sort of terrible, cruel person. (laughs) 
like, yes, I will. We can't be friends anymore. And then this podcast is over. <laughs> like, yes, I would stab that person to get the key out of their stomach or whatever. Uh, the answer is very much what I think I was trying to communicate earlier, which is that it's a both and. The more power you have as an individual, the more you become the structure. And maybe the more choices you have. Sure. Same difference. But you don't. That's the same thing. In order to like meet your basic survival needs, you don't have to follow one particular path or, or is it that like the, the things you're being driven by at that level of power are not survival. Like you're, you're being driven by these sort of higher level needs or wants or whatever it is that's making you make your choices, I guess. Sure. If you want to go to Maslow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was, I guess maybe that, I don't know if that would exactly be Maslow, but something like that, right. You're, if someone's making choices and yet they're they're they have so few resources and so few choices to make to like acquire sort of basic necessities or willing to give them more leeway, I guess, in the types of choices they make or whether they make a choice that hurts another person or whatever it is, whereas someone who's higher up power wise has more choices or is is being driven by needs that are less important. It's both. It's also, it's, it's that as well as the scope of by just by definition, the scope of, I want to evoke some sort of Marthaism here, but I don't know what the word is, <laughs> but uh, sui generis or some shit. Like, I don't remember what that means. Uh, Martha is it like be- a tautology maybe. Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe it is then but by definition, if and I'll go back to the racism racism example, if I say some racist thing to someone, well, the implications of that are they may feel bad at a they may be very angry or upset, and that may trickle out and I don't know they maybe they go and mistreat their kid because now they're in a bad mood. Some extreme kind of example, maybe my comment results in them, I don't know enacting some violence on someone to lash out as vengeance or maybe they ruin their life because they go, they stab me and then they're, I mean, but whatever the, the scope of that decision is couple people, one person. If I'm a policymaker and I enact some sort of racist policy, whatever my motivation is, the, the repercussions of that are whatever the range of my policy is. It's hundreds of thousands of people or thousands of people or tens, whatever. If as a boss, I decide I'm not going to hire people of some ethnic group. So the, the, it is, it's just by definition of having that power, you as an individual are more responsible because there's more responsibility associated with the scale and scope of those decisions. If you make some of those decisions prior to or in the process of gaining that power and are unaware that's forgivable i certainly to a or understandable to a point but it, there's a moment where people point that out to you i mean look at zuckerberg with facebook okay there was a period of time when it was unclear that facebook was becoming a platform for proto-fascism and, and uh, the spread of stochastic terrorism and 
that okay that was a latent that was an unintended consequence of being able to network but once that's been pointed out to you if your decision is then i'd rather make another have the company make 10 billion dollars a year instead of address that energetically well at that point and if you don't have the character to be that then i would say it is the obligation of the group to remove you from power those are your choices and we we can either remove you from power peacefully we can say to you look you're contributing to us you are now facebook went from being an individual thing to a social structure and so if now you are the lead you are the one who designs the social structure and we are telling you that what your social structure does is perpetuate or enable and create the fertile conditions of possibility for authoritarianism and violence and hate crimes and fascism. And you hear that and you look at the data and you understand that and you weigh that data against a dollar amount and you decide I'll take the dollars. Well, at that point, I guess for me that what that means is that that is very much what we do as a society is we should decide at what point should you be removed from power And then the next step is we can either remove you from power peacefully or you can say, well, no, I'm not going to go peacefully and we can forcefully remove you. I mean, those at a very fundamental level, that's those, those are the preconditions or the framework for the social contract as that social contract establishes or, or is um, scaled up from the individual to the, society right if it's two people if that person has wronged you and you go to that person you say look you have wronged me you either need to make it right or you need to change your behavior that person either gets to say okay i'll do one of those things or kiss off i'm going to keep doing what i'm doing if you got a problem with it do something about it well then your options are to do something about it or uh, i guess build a wall or leave, or I, I mean, I don't know, but but that to me is a very equivalent scenario to that, and that's the individual. But again, that's those are these those are the extreme examples of the both and of individual and structure, right? At the individual, me, me, and you, we are our own social structure because as individuals, if it's just you and I interacting and we're out in the middle of a wilderness, it comes at night. That is the social structure amount of food or threat external to us influences that. But essentially, you and I have control over us. When you scale up to social structure, it is the people who, how, however they have a, I think, I guess it, I think it does matter how, how you achieved that position of power. But if you are then shaping the social structure, it's, I don't really have a better explanation other than to say it is by definition. It is by virtue of being in the position of having power that your character is judged more harshly because the scope of your actions have much more significant consequences. And if you can't make those decisions or you don't want that responsibility, give it to somebody who will. So I like a lot of what you're saying. I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing you argue here is that it's magnitude of harm. Sure. That determines whether structure, like whether, whether individuals should be held culpable for the harm that they're doing. If, if there's, when harm gets to be extensive enough, which 
when you're in a position of power, you have a lot more ability to harm much more broadly because what you do impacts a lot more people. Then you're arguing that it that warrants individual culpability over structural culpability. Yes, and intention. I mean, I think intention does, which is what I was saying of of awareness. I mean, if you're doing it with the with the clear understanding, if you're doing it out of malice, or you're doing it with a clear understanding of my decision is going to result in this suffering, and that's the weight of the world, right? Is but it is the it is the intention. I am more inclined. I mean, all of that, the devil is in the details as with everything, right? But if you thought you were really doing something good and you tried your best to understand the circumstances and you did your thing and it ended up having some sort of unintended, really massive negative situation, well, I think there ought to be at least opportunity to write it or or change or whatever, but um, but I think I think intention does matter to some extent. I mean, I understand that a lot of his, history of cruelty was paved with good intentions, so that's why I say the devil's in the details, and there needs to be there's a more elaborate, probably decision process there. But and scale, right? And this is the scale. I mean, this is what at least in deviance is the is the gripe is the scale of absolutely the scale of harm or, or evil is, and we've talked about this, you know, I've talked about this. It's so, at least in the U S it's so disproportionate. It's like inverse. If I poison you, if I put a bunch of poison, if I put some poison in your food tonight and you end up with cancer, well, I face whatever the consequences are for, I don't know, attempted murder or whatever. If I'm DuPont and I pour poison in the world's water supply, <laughs> and uh thousands hundreds millions hundreds tens of millions of people end up with cancer and health problems then it's like oh here's a fine and whatever your stock price is going to take a five percent hit for six months that's absurd right right so those with power in society have structured things such that individual culpability is a lot uh it weighs down a lot more heavily on those that don't have power because those that do have power don't want individual culpability weighing down on them. And so yeah. the legal system is structured in such a way that that won't happen. Sure. I like a lot of what you're saying. And I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to keep thinking about this conversation, which I like. I, I do think there's a part of, you know, just as you're, as you're saying that there's a part of my heart that has a really hard time believing very many people are, are truly bad intentioned. And you that grew up in Ohio. <laughs> What'd you say? I said you grew up in Ohio. <laughs> and <laughs> actually, that would that would work much better if you were south of the Mason Dixon line. But um... I am very inclined to look at even very bad behaviors and say that there must be some sort of explanation whereby the rationale, the the way somebody is brain is processing all of this. It doesn't allow them to see the bad that they're doing, but that I think is a, a personality trait that we differ on. Um, and yeah. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that it's, it, it hurts my heart sometimes to hear some of these arguments, but I like a lot of what you're saying. And I, especially, I think the biggest sort of gem I've gotten out of this conversation is I'm glad is you this, got it. I'm glad you got a gem. <laughs> I did is, is this idea of 
Yeah, the the greater body count, I guess I would say, the greater potential for harm for people in a, a higher structural position. And I'll keep thinking on that, the extent to which that sort of raises the bar for individual culpability. I can't, I just can't wait to talk to you about Sonosol. It's just, it's just baffles me to, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not invested in changing your mind, Laura. I, I'm not. I appreciate your perspective. I think it's really valuable. I think I likely err on the, the side of too pessimistic about people. And I think it is admirable and honorable in many ways that you err, or I would probably say you err on the side of optimism about people. I would agree um, with the word error in that critique. So don't feel like you're lobbing that at me. Except I, I would, I would just, state that about just, myself too. Just, well, and just in the sake of trying to discuss or, or make the point. And at the same time, you were reading about the individual actions that facilitated the mass murder processes that were the death camps of the Holocaust. And you're like, ah, not everybody's so bad. There's nobody's really that cruel. Well, <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're this is not the Holocaust. <laughs> This is not the place to start just, this conversation. It's not so to I say you're it. wrong. It just that that divide is just it just is it's fascinating to me. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you should change your mind. I just and you I appreciate that you challenged me. I appreciate you had me read Human Smoke. And th- there were moments of the book where I was I was it's an interesting argument. I surely acknowledge that I surely acknowledge that there were there were a lot of choices that were made on the part of the allies that resulted in in death that did not need to happen and if you were able to if you were able to have 10,000 world war 2s and 10,000 universes there is a a universe where there could have been significantly less death the allies still would have won the war. All these other things would have still played out. But the, the takeaway, the issue that I have with human smoke is whoever it is, what's name Nick something seems to come away with this argument of the, the history that we had, particularly looking in hindsight during the war or shortly thereafter, I think you could, his argument might, might've held more soundly, but in hindsight, looking at it and saying, well, most of that we really didn't need to engage in is profoundly, I guess, naive. But again, that may, that's from a, someone with a pr- perspective of probably overly pessimistic about people and yada, yada. Anyway, I'm sorry. You were, I'm off in my own little world. No, that's okay. I, I think you've, you've at least taken the fire out of what I was just going to say, because then I was thinking about what you were going to say and somehow the importance of whatever that was I was going to raise has faded. But I think that's a good thing because I think we shouldn't go totally down the avenue song. of yeah. human smoke and Nazism and all of that right now. We should probably <laughs> find our way back to Saw. Right. I, yeah, I can do <laughs> um, that. So. I have one more thing, but you do you, do you first. Oh, I, I didn't have in particular to say about Saw, I was just oh. going to say, I think we should transition maybe um, 
out of this direction, or, or do you, if, if you want to keep going, then I might dive I back know. in with whatever that comment was I was going to make about, oh, I know what it was. Oh, now I remember it. That's trouble. But we you say what as, you want to say, or we can just no. get back to saw. Hey, you might as well say your thing. Well, so I, I'm curious, like the solder commando could be held personally responsible as well for what they did, although they were in a lower position of power and they were certainly being told what to do by someone else. And I, my impression reading that book is not at all to demonize them. It's that their story is sort of highlighting the atrocities of those higher up in the structure. But with all of these arguments you're making, I mean, I suppose they could have sat down and said, I'll take the bullet. I'm not going to do it. And they didn't like, so that is, I suppose, individual choice that's helping the cogs in the machine roll. But like at what line, where do you draw the line where you say these people made decisions and they have power and they kind of count and, and look at the amount of atrocities they're doing and they therefore deserve individual culpability. And where do you draw the line and say, oh no, those people were just influenced by structure and they don't deserve culpability. Which is, I can answer that without furthering that right now, which is why, which is another reason for me, the, the existence of their role and them as individuals and hearing their stories is to me why I've been badgering you for two years, three years to read this book so we can watch this film because along with multiple other qualities and circumstances that their situation is so extraordinary as to, as to demonstrate the very limits of many of our most interesting questions in the world. It, it is to press the bounds of not, not just the practical, but the existential limits of human experience. And, and so, which to say that, no, I don't think we can go any further with that till you finish reading. And, and, but I, that for me, and the film as it comes out of that is why uh, and what you just said, that structure, agency, individual responsibility, circumstances, ethical concerns, that's just one avenue. I think that they and the, their story um, addresses in ways that it's like, it's one of those things like, I, I don't think you could imagine a more extreme example of some of those circumstances. So, so anyway, that's, I'll just say that's another reason why I do want to see that film. And I do want to discuss the book with you. And it has remained as important to me as it was however long ago that, that we actually have that, have that conversation. So the other possible, or I think uh, my inclination is it's another bit on the scale of a more conservative ideological bend of the film overall is the failure of the institutions of medicine and police to be able to resolve any of the anything really the police don't find jigsaw not through the system glover who does find him has been disbanded from the police or whatever he's acting as a rogue separate person the surgeon or the doctors uh jigsaw is inoperable so they didn't catch it they don't really say that but he medicine is is ineffective 
in accomplishing accomplishing that. I guess his knowledge as a surgeon is what is meant to allow him to cut his foot off and, and escape. And he does that, but that's almost an individual implementation of medicine more so than an institution. And how about this? There's, there's a world where John's tumors were caught early because of whatever annual physicals. And <laughs> it wasn't too late to operate him on, on him. And so that, I guess that's really my only other bit that I wanted to say. And there's something too about, and then how the family, the nuclear family fits into that. I'm not exactly sure. And I guess the the piece of that though, oh, I guess the, the nuclear family does end up saving Larry because it is his role as patriarch and protector of his wife and child that finally motivates him to move to the extreme behavior that he needed to do in order to prevail in the situation. So those pieces to me, less pronounced, but they do still bend on that conservative rail. I like that. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a reference to, I believe it's called living downstream. We've Mm. talked about this before, but it's an article that talks about, talks about a, a woman getting bladder cancer, I think it is. And how the argument that she makes throughout this paper is that we're fed all of these ideas about the individual causes of cancer. And we're really directed at the wrong causes like, Oh, eat more apples and go on walks or whatever. But that some massive amount of, I think it was bladder cancer, but the type of cancer that she has some massive amount of that is caused by environmental pollutants and she makes the argument that we, you know, we're, we don't look at the structural causes because that is in the, not in the best financial interests of those with power. We are directed away from those sorts of causes. And so just when you said the thing about, you know, there's an alternate film here where his cancer got caught early and the medical institution prevailed, I suppose there's also an alternate universe here where he didn't get cancer because, you know, environmental conditions were such that he didn't end up with this burden. And I say that only because I think, I think it actually ties into the argument you're making and maybe overall this sort of agency structure discussion we've just had, whereby people with less power in the system, when you don't realize the actual causes of the ills that you have, you turn and you start snapping at each other, right? And we've seen that, that's come up in many films that we've seen, the sort of fighting amongst people who all really should be seen as victims of a larger structural problem. So Jigsaw gets mad at the other individual people who don't have cancer because what he's really upset about is that he has cancer. If he knew how to direct that anger, he might direct it structurally toward the causes of his cancer, whether that be insufficiencies in the medical care system because (laughs) he didn't have the right insurance or whatever it is, or if it could be the environmental structure or pollutants in the environment or whatever caused him to end up in that situation. Um, But instead we have a film where it's just assumed that we might as well fight amongst ourselves and go watch football. I don't know why I want to throw that in, but it's the same instinct, right? It's like channeling that anger away from its true cause, I guess, fits with what you're saying on these sort of little little conservative pieces in the film. Overall, though, I think most of the film's conservative ideology that you're pulling out is not intentional. I don't think it was a well-crafted argument. I think it's more, this is, I'm going to put this one in the basket of it's a reflection on society. And a lot of these little nuggets that we're seeing just come from those arguments kind of existing in society more so than the film purposefully putting them in there, because 
if it was purposeful, they just didn't do a good job. Like they didn't, they didn't make their argument well. It contradicts itself in several places. And so I think, yes, but I think unintentionally so. And, and I I would also argue it's not as bad as it could have been still. All of those pieces are there and it, I guess had it been a honed argument to really make those points, it could have been worse because it, it stumbled over itself in so many places that it actually kind of contradicted its, its own problems, I guess. The last piece I think I have is you talked about what is the fear and there's this concern of trust and these dynamics of trust that, again, it got sloppy, got sweaty, but that might've been a piece there. And that would, again, we're always maybe not always, but we're often fitting data to the theory. We're often at the risk or we are fitting data to the theory, but 2004, we're at the height of Bush Jr. Cheney administration, us versus them, real Americans, patriots versus liberals. And that uh, and uh, and particularly the either you support the troops or you're a terrorist. So real and not so very much not just a uh, Americans versus the Middle East or Middle Eastern people or Christians versus Islam, but within. And there were these. I know that there were. I don't remember the particular program, but part of the Patriot Act also was this like the whole like that's kind of gotten detached with like if you see something, say something was like spy on your neighbor, keep an eye out. Cause you don't know who might be complicit in enabling the whoever environmentalists are coming to take your oil or whatever they hit there. But their whole thing was, you shouldn't was this, this sowing this divisiveness and this, well, it, you can't really trust the people around you, particularly if they are any othered in any way. They're not the quote unquote real Americans of hetero, white, male, Christian, gun owning, gas guzzling. I've got a flag in my truck and my front lawn. And so, and so for this to come out in 2004, whether that's a reflection of that or feeding off of that intentionally or unintentionally, it certainly would help to explain why it resonated or, or worked as, I mean, I think it's a, like you said, it's a good film. It holds up, but particularly in that era and that moment, it seems very fitting. What I hear is what you're saying. What I hear you saying that's really useful to me is that we've critiqued a lot of these films on the, on the fear that it they're presenting or on the fear that they're digging into. And I think you somehow just tied it together for me when fear is directed at individuals and particularly individuals without power, that can be problematic because again, that's redirecting this sort of societal fear toward individuals at the bottom of the structural hierarchy. And that's what we, and also maybe the corollary of that, when the fear is coming from people with power, that can also be problematic because again, it's highlighting the fears of those higher up in the structure, particularly of those lower down in the structure. And so we saw that in, The Conjuring and all of the really paranormal films that we've seen, we saw people that had privilege and resources and were fairly comfortable expressing this fear about being gotten somehow. And that that fear was not at all directed at structural elements. It was directed at individuals. 
And that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it. it. Again, in contrast to something like Assassination Nation, where the fear was not directed at individuals, at least not individuals with low power. And that's a very different setup and a very different kind of fear. So in a film like this, distrust as a as a base fear, it's not just, well, it's a film about distrust. I mean, I don't know that it overall is. I thought the beginning started that way. But you have to think about distrust of whom? Because if it's distrust of individuals and particularly individuals without power from people with power, that's fitting this kind of ideology that you're throwing out there. Um, it could be a film about distrust in conditions that are very different and that would not have the same sort of problematic background. Beautifully that's, said. That's, yeah, I like that. That's really interesting. And also I just want to point out sort of on a funny note here that whenever a film takes place, when a film has conservative ideology and it, it takes place in a conservative era, you'll make this argument that like it's because it's in the conservative era. And when it has conservative ideology and it takes place in a more liberal era, you make the argument that like, well, it's because it's in a liberal era and all the conservatives are super freaked out because Barack Obama's president or whatever. So, and you're, you're probably right in both of those circumstances, honestly, because those types of ideologies are present all the time, but they're present, whether they're being held up and elevated, they're present when they're being sort of critiqued by society at large. And so that's probably, probably true overall. I did acknowledge that I am um, with horror movies, <laughs> not with not with my academic research, but with the podcast and horror movies, I do feel like sometimes I'm fitting the data to the theory. Well, and honestly, like I said, I don't think it's it's untrue that those types of fears would be around all the time. It's not like they go away in either of those circumstances. But but anyway, yeah, something there about the the individual versus structural fear and the fear of people, fear coming from people with power or without power is a, an interesting dynamic that I haven't thought of before. Uh, and with regard to what you said about that, I would be very curious if I made that argument, if I made those arguments on both sides of explaining conservative ideology in a film, specifically about uh, Hollywood, big budget films, versus independent outsider films. Because if it's Hollywood, I would absolutely stand by that because I would argue that Hollywood is overall overwhelmingly a conservative mode of production. So I, I would not feel bad if about, about that. I think that would be explained by that, you know, by that contributing factor. If I've been doing that about both independent and big budget Hollywood films or, or even not, or maybe the, the different, maybe the alternative would be um, conservative mainstream film. I'll just say filmmakers with privilege, white men primarily, or, or, or not versus ex other filmmakers who, who come from back to have circumstances that aren't privileged. But I would, I would love to see, I would love to see how I, how my, if I have trends of bias or if my, my trends of those explanations could be attributed to production Hollywood versus not, or um, privilege of filmmakers versus not. Don't you think both could be true though? Sure. Yeah. Both. I mean, I think, I think you could actually be right on both counts. I think you could be likely sure. to see films like that in times that where the political structure is more conservative and you could be likely to see films like that where it's more liberal. Yeah. It would be interesting to me as a self-check of if I'm attributing that 
or it could just be like you say it could just be accurate and that could just be i mean that's back to our our inspiration that well no the no, okay never mind blah, blah 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 um it could both be true i would be curious to see how i've attributed that and then obviously i would love to see if there was some objective measure that we could sort out to be able to compare our our what we've said or what i've said versus what actually is i mean there is no and that's a fun of film criticism right as there is no way to here's the data did you attribute it right or did you explain it accept it or robustly or not but i would love to know that we have to watch thinking, so many films i would love to know that too though i would love to know if there were if, if some of these patterns that we're throwing out there as possible were actually there and we could identify them that would be really oh, yeah. they probably are with a lot of confounding factors i'm sure like lags in how long it takes something to get produced or funded or you know like that yeah. would be i'd be a mess but right it'd be really interesting well somebody in big data can start <laughs> sorting that out all right so towards the end of our discussion with each film we give a grade to the film that is meant to evaluate the contribution of the film in terms of social responsibility basically as a overarching measure of all of the things we've discussed in the episode and how we think that they have played out in terms of the weight and importance of each one of what's been done well and versus what hasn't. You've heard a lot of what we've considered, what we typically consider representation and ideology and how effective the argument was made and whether that argument was made well as a progressive argument or poorly as a conservative argument or all those things. And we, we wrap it up in a, in a grade that is our, social responsibility takeaway for the film. Laura, do you want the honors? I'm so torn. I mean, like everything we've watched lately, my first inclination is just to land somewhere in the the blah D category of like, it could have been worse, but it wasn't good. The only place I'm hung up on is that just like that Judah and the lion song, I really love a, a good reminder in a motivational way that I'm going to die. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I find that to be uplifting and a, and a positive message to put out into society. And the fact that this tapped into that a tiny bit, you know, I, I do think my first time around, that was mostly what I took from it and why I liked it. I mean, aside from the fact that it's just a fun movie, mm-hmm. I think the the elements of that argument that were in there were kind of cool and they resonated and, and they're still there and they still kind of resonate. It's just like they did it in the worst possible way. I mean, they took, Oh God, they just did it. I won't rehash everything we just said, but they did it in the absolute <laughs> possible way. So I'm I'm trying to decide if that could drag it up into C minus just like by the skin of its teeth or if it needs to fall back down into D. Oh, uh, I mean there's nothing good really. There was a I I, I found graphic. some of your argument compelling about Lawrence doing the right thing and there's a sense of it's a wash cuz he does the humane or humanitarian or self-abdicating action multiple times and as far as we know, is is surviving or survives as far as we see in the film. And at the same time, Jigsaw, who's a mess for a lot of reasons, also has survived at the end. So there's a wash there, but I actually found your argument about, well, you know, there's some, there's a message there where 
that is all right. A... Yeah. All right. All right. You're helping me feel okay about, like I said, bumping it up barely into C. Yeah. I'll go with C minus. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it's better than some of the things we've lumped into D. It was just a lot of fun. I don't want that to influence, you know, I don't want this to be like a summer of 84 where it's like the enjoyment of watching it somehow makes me want to wipe out the trouble that it put out. But yeah, it was a lot of fun too. So, and I'll just say part of the, or one of the crucial distinctions we make when we're grading is we, how much we enjoy the film or how engrossing the film is, is a factor, but that's not our primary concern here. So that's part of the machinations of what Laura's struggling with there. On the other side of, I don't know why I'm talking us into a C minus. I didn't really start out with a plan to do that, but and this, we'll see, this is totally like a C minus. Maybe this will drag us down. But I was thinking, you know, all the ancillary characters are, all the people of color and mo- the women are relegated to ancillary characters, but they are there. <laughs> <laughs> there is a version of this, there is a version of this film that's all white. And I mean, the women would presumably still be there, but there's totally a version of this film that's all white. And again, that's, like I said, that's not like, obviously there's room for improvement, but it, there's also, it could be worse. You know, that's another, for me, that's kind of a C minus. Okay. Like you did. And they were, I did not find, I guess, particularly the detectives to be some sort of racial caricature. They weren't particularly interesting characters but the asian guy didn't like do math or something i mean you know it wasn't just a total danny glover's black detective wasn't the first one to die or you know i don't know so there was a little bit of like yeah okay i could see minus he gave people some work in the horror genre in 2004 i i agree with that and and i i wanted to give a tiny bit of follow-up on what you said about the film's popularity or not popularity or enjoyment, I guess, purposes. The enjoyment can be a problem if it, if it promotes a bad ideology and then it does so, so enjoyably that it gets into everybody's brain. That's trouble in itself. And this one, I I think this is a case where the enjoyability works against it somewhat like summer of 84, not that in the, it was way more fun to watch and I liked it, but the fact that I liked it and you might not even notice these problems that then creep into your psyche and do their damage in ways that you're not aware of that that is a bit troubling to me but I'm still I'm still gonna go with C minus yeah I because I think you made some really good points there and and like I said I do I just I love a motivational reminder of my mortality I I think that is a redeeming message that this film vaguely attempted in a god in a super awful way I'm gonna go right down this hole again and start thinking about why it's so bad and want to drag it down yeah, let's call it C minus. Okay. I mean, you attribute that to me, but you were the one who made those arguments during the discussion. I'm just pushing them back to you. Which arguments? About there being positive. Yeah. Take-aways. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. I just don't want to take that attribution. Anyway. All right. And I think we'll cut some of the Nazi <laughs> Holocaust stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but if you're listening to this, you're still probably like two hours in. <laughs> so we appreciate that. We hope you enjoyed it. 
horror films are our collective nightmares. Press play on your tape recorder. <laughs> I was I was absolutely sure you were going to go with putting the puzzle pieces together. Oh, no, I was going to uh, that was going to be my the press play is one option. The other would be something about we invite you into a room with the two of us, not knowing anything else. <laughs> Something like that, that, you know, something like that. I couldn't put it all together. Let's piece together the puzzle of whether this film had anything to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's good. You got one more? No. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's got to be a like, what, what what is his catchphrase? Let's play a game. There's got to be like uh, where we could just do a let's play a podcast. <laughs> Whatever. I'm going to stick with my press play on your recorder. Play me. It's actually, I guess, what it says on the. I'm always so tired when you get to that part and I'm amazed for your enthusiasm for it. Because part of me, like my brain is, my brain is usually fried by the time we get to the end of oh, this God. in a good way, in like a. It's like the way you feel after a run or something. You need to get that energy out. I feel like this is very uh, satisfying. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I continue to love this. This is great. I am totally fried in a good way. Noah comes yeah. back tomorrow and he's here for the whole week because um, he has off school. So oh, yeah. I am actually going to go wrap his Christmas presents now oh. when we get off here because I won't be able I mean. Usually I do that like the night before Christmas and it's just sounds nice to do it before he even gets here. Totally. His big present this year is cheese making supplies. I got him like, yeah, if you, you will be getting some cheese if you would like, (laughs) I can can mail you some cheese. I got him a whole bunch of like grown up cheese making supplies. Cool. You know, I couldn't decide what to get him. I hate the idea of just for like consumerist purposes buying people things that they might not even want, or, you know, it's like, oh, you have to get presents. And so come up with presents and spend a bunch of money on junk. That's just going to get thrown in the corner. And so I really try to get him, like, I try to use the opportunity of holidays like this to get him things that I either wanted to get him anyway, or like, you know, like there's some reason, or it's going to actually feed into his life positively. And I couldn't really think of something this year. And what I usually do with people who are not Noah is if I was planning on getting someone a present and I couldn't think of anything, I'll just tell them that and I won't get them a present because I, I'm so against the idea of getting someone pre- a present, like for the sake of getting them a present, you know? I mean, I'll yeah. just say like, look, I think this needs to be, to me, this should be like a real sort of emotionally invested thing that I'm doing because I want to do it and because I really want to like give this thing to you. And if I don't have something like that, then you'll get something in a few months maybe when I do. But right now, like I just, <laughs> uh-huh. just don't do that. Doesn't, I don't know. So, that too. Um, I do that with my parents sometimes. I'm like, I, I didn't know what to get you. And then February comes around. I'll be like, oh, here's, I figured out this seemed like a thing to get you. So 
I get that. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But so this year I didn't know what to get him, but with Noah, I don't want to like not have a present for him on Christmas. That feels like a very different category than every yeah. other person. Oh yeah, totally. Say yeah. that too. And so since I couldn't think of something, I thought, well, you know, what's a fun thing we could do together because he likes attention and he likes activities that we can do. And so I thought, let's find a way to make something. And then when I stumbled on that, I thought, you know, that'd be really fun. We've got a week off together now. So I got him this kind of fancy kit that came with a book on how to make all different kinds of cheeses and hard cheese. And we've got a bunch of chemicals in the freezer and just stuff that I've never used. It came with like the wax to like in a brush to like melt the wax and put it on the outside. And so I have no idea, but we're going to have a cheese making adventure this week. Um, And I'm actually really excited about it. And yeah, that I thought I can stand behind that because it's like an activity, you know, and. Oh, that sounds awesome. Are you talking to Hippo? Yes. Oh, okay. Does he talk back? He does often. Like, you're right. You know, like I'll get up in the morning and I'll say, good morning, Hippo. And then he's like, meow. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a thing. They, uh, yeah. I sent you the link, Um, right? About cats only meow with people. They don't meow. They don't meow in the wild. Oh, that's cool. Because it's, it's them. They're. Sarah actually said that to me as the first person who ever really convinced me that she was like, you know, when they meow at you, they're saying something to you. And I was like, that blew my mind. That's cool. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if they're saying something or not, but they're imitating. They're trying to be social with you when you're social with them. Oh, that's so, really neat. Yeah. I, I like Hippo. I, I feel a little bit guilty for the fact that he's lived here for so long and he's like I've barely noticed him because he had this really problematic sibling who just took up all my attention and was constantly like screaming and spinning in circles in front of us. And so he's just like the quiet one in the background who like wasn't much trouble. And uh, now I'm getting to know him a lot better. Yeah. Well, he's a cat. He probably barely noticed you too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Rena, okay, Laura, I'm going to go eat. The twist at the end is absolutely worth pausing us. Please come back, but, but go, go watch the film. It's available all all over the place with multiple streaming services and whatnot. Um, I don't think we, did we actually spoil anything else? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. Although I think even acknowledging the twist at the end for anyone who has somehow managed not to see saw might in itself be a spoiler because that's just an excellent scene. I would take that out. Okay. I'll cut that so irritating all right <laughs> forget it i have a, a little you know one of those like just one cup coffee maker things like a little drip kind of deal you put the filter in and then yep. just drip it right through and the filters i could not figure out how to get them not to have the coffee grinds go through like it was just it would always just have coffee grinds in the cup and then isaac came over sometime and he's like oh you fold it like don't you know you're supposed to fold it and on the back of the box it says fold it I was like, oh, well, I never read the box. No, that doesn't seem intuitive, but okay, fine. So I fold it, but now it's still like a third of the time it doesn't work. And I don't know if it's like unfolding or like what my problem is getting this to work right, but I waste so much coffee. So can you wait a minute so I can go get a new filter and pour it back through the filter because my coffee is sitting there all full of grinds? (laughs) Or should I just let it sit until we're done recording? Are you in a hurry? Can't you just pour it slower? Why slower? Pour the water slower. Oh, and then it won't bust through? It busts through? It doesn't spill over the top? No, no, no. It's not spilling over the top. It's going through the filter. Like the filter splits the bottom of the filter. 
just like splits open. Are you sure it's you like can have the through. filter upside down? Yes. <laughs> Give me just one minute. I'll run it through a new filter. Can't you do that in front of the camera so you can talk while you stare at your filter? If you're that interested, I'll show you. Yeah, no, yeah, Maletti, okay. So, Melita, whatever. So it says, yeah, it, it says here, fold filter crimp for proper placement. I thought, okay. I mean, I didn't know how important that was. See there are little arrows on the bottom and the side of this thing saying to fold it? Sure, okay. Apparently, super crucial, because otherwise, <laughs> you can come with me here. Oh my God. It'll take twice as long, but it's more fun. Why don't you bring the coffee cup to you? Never mind. I have to thank you, Laura. I, I haven't laughed that hard in like a month. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> uh, I, I have no <laughs> I have no suggestion for you. Um some someday when <clears throat> I can see you, I, I would be happy to try to do a pour over coffee with you in person and we can see <laughs> but it's just the... weird isn't it i don't i have a hard time believing it's that important that you have to fold it exactly right because otherwise it busts right out the bottom i've never folded anything for a, a <laughs> drip over coffee uh, or a pour over coffee i've never had a problem i i can't imagine what the situation is <laughs> but uh like i said Sorry it was at your expense, but <laughs> I haven't laughed that long in a long time. Welcome. This <clears throat> Welcome. This is the collect welcome? Golly. I gotta take a I mean that's when you know both he and I were dealing with the travesty that is the CU sociology program. And writing dissertations with <laughs> with professors actively working against us, <laughs> so maybe Saw felt like the literal representation of the figurative experience of CU's sociology doctorate program. <laughs> and yes, I'm going to leave that in because that's how I feel about that. Anyway. This fucking fruit fly is killing me. And then 
the the other piece I was going to say was, uh, if you'll permit me, and then uh, I would love for you to jump back in. Um, uh, uh, um, darn it. I don't know. What, what? There's something else. Dang it. Go, I don't know. Go ahead. If you have anything. I agree that it's totally muddy and that it's not, it doesn't give like a clear message, but. Maybe not always, but we're often fitting data to the theory, theory to the data. I don't know. Whatever's the bad one. <laughs> That PhD paying off, Laura. <laughs> We're fitting uh, data to the theory, right? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to pretend you found what you thought you were going to find just because it makes you feel better. Right. Okay. I mean, we're, we're often at the risk where we are fitting data to the theory, but...